0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Ben Saville to tell us all about his book titled England and the Papacy in the Early Middle Ages, Papal Privileges in European Perspective. This book has just come out from Oxford University Press in 2023, and it's a really interesting book uh, for a number of reasons, the first of which being that there hasn't been a book like this that studies the interactions between England and the papacy in the early Middle Ages. Um, Interestingly, and we're going to talk about it, the book uh, is not... Just the Anglo-Saxon period or just the Norman period, the book crosses over the magical um, 1066 year, which is one of the things that makes it interesting. Um, But the book does a number of other things that I think are going to be useful to people that study England in this period and people that study the papacy in any period, really. Anyway, there's a lot that's fascinating about this book and I think some very useful contributions to the scholarship. So Ben, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast to tell us all about it.
1: Oh, well, thank you for having me.
0: Before we dive into the book and its contributions, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining kind of why you decided to write this? Uh,
1: yes. Um, so I'm uh, currently based in Germany. I'm an Alexander von Humboldt Fellow at the Freie Universität Berlin. Um, but my background is um, really in University College London and Oxford, where I studied. And really, kind of the first roots of thinking about this book. Um, Came whilst doing postdoctoral study in London. Essentially, I was doing some kind of minor work looking at papal privileges, and I should kind of say what these are first, which is essentially they're kind of quite boring, straightforward documents where the papacy promises, uh, in not too many words, usually to give a certain beneficiary somewhere in Europe um, their own particular favor. So they're granting. Um, protection, they're granting confirmation of property rights, sort of giving them a general kind of papal pat on the back. Um, And when I was looking at this as a postgraduate student, uh, I went to the the paleography room at Senate House Library in London and called up some um, facsimile images of these original documents. And the way that often you see these documents, when you're looking at them within a critical edition, um, they seem like very straightforward, boring, bureaucratic things. And certainly you kind of imagine them looking like how papal documents look in the sort of high and later Middle Ages, which is sort of very routine, uh, bureaucratic, legalistic stuff. And when I called up these images um, in kind of full size in these great big editions printed in the 1920s, I was kind of absolutely amazed because it turns out these documents are completely weird. Um, They're written on papyrus, which is basically not used at all in this period anywhere else in the Latin West. Um, They're written in this completely unreadable Latin script that in some ways kind of looks a bit like Greek, looks a lot like kind of very ancient Roman scripts that aren't used anymore. They're huge. They're between two and a half, three meters to seven meters long these kind of gigantic scrolls. In fact, if they look like anything, they look like um, sort of Byzantine or sort of Caliphate sort of Abbasid, Umayyad, Fatimid documents from this same period. And I think looking at them was a reminder that what we think the papacy is in the early Middle Ages, so before the mid 11th century, is something completely different. This is actually a very kind of strange institution and the way in which people imagine it at the time and interact with it um, is different to what we're used to. And I think what we we want to imagine by sort of projecting forwards into the sort of idea of the papacy and Catholic church that develops from the 11th, 12th century onwards, which kind of used to now, this is a, a very different, quite exotic, quite, not thinking in the right word, but kind of like Eastern Eastern Mediterranean kind of institution who give these kind of special grants of their favor and privilege in these kind of priceless huge exotic materials so to begin with i kind of wanted to look into this more because it seems like a good way of kind of i suppose what you might call weirding the papacy i feel like this is what we should be doing as medievalists there's often a tendency to want to make things relate to us how did they live like we did now whereas in many ways it's often more helpful to kind of deconstruct those senses of familiarity and look at ways in which the history of kind of early medieval Europe or the history, the early history of Christianity in the Catholic Church is actually a very weird and very different world to what we're used to. And this seemed like a good way of kind of initially going about that. But what's also interesting about doing it with England is because these very strange documents were originally made out of papyrus, um, all of them from England at least, Um, Some survive from elsewhere across Europe, but the ones from England at least have completely disintegrated and fallen apart. Sometimes we just have lead bullae, which are like these lead seals that hang on them. And these have been sort of dug up in fields around England, but the documents themselves are missing. So in some ways, uh, there's a project here to reconstruct this kind of lost sort of Egyptian papyral past that used to exist in early medieval England. And also through doing that, an opportunity to kind of reassess what this relationship between England and the papacy means. Uh, There's the kind of weirding of it I was just talking about, but also this issue of, well, the main thing about these documents is the papacy doesn't just send them off off its own back. Um, In fact, people in England have to make the effort of going all the way to Rome and asking for one and really wanting one and bringing them back to solve particular problems on the island. And so in many ways, they give us an opportunity to get outside these kind of grand narratives of this sort of so-called special relationship between England and Rome in the early Middle Ages and look at it in a kind of a more documentary-based fashion um, that's driven from kind of needs and desires that's happening within English society in the first millennium, um, rather than narrative that sort of focuses on the papal centre and this sort of very traditional institutional history of the papacy.
0: I love the idea of weirding the papacy. Um, that gives a great way in and it's a very intriguing um, impulse to build a book around. So that absolutely makes sense of kind of going, hang on a second, there's papyrus? What is up with this? Um, no that completely makes sense um so thinking about you mentioned the first millennium the kind of early middle ages the within the discipline of um medieval history wanting to do these things so i'd love to ask you a bit about um the time period for the book 680 to 1073 um is this kind of after, beforehand no papyrus afterwards no papyrus i mean what what's going on with your selection of these years
1: um well the the timing is really specific to looking at england so i think um, these kinds of documents being issued from Rome, from whenever the papacy begins, <laughs> which we can call a confessional issue, but at least from the sort of uh, fourth century. Um, the, the time frame for the book is really specifically English. Um, circa 680 is the first date which these are first kind of brought into England that we can tell. There are some earlier documents that go right back to the conversion of England, which happens about 80 years before. But uh, um, so much has been written about this conversion process of England. Uh, I'm unsure there's lots of like really important questions that still need to be asked, but I kind of wanted to get away from that and move it on a bit so we could write about a new thing. So the beginning of the book is fast forwarded a bit to the end of the seventh century, And I suppose the difference there is that it's the first period in which people from England are really going to Rome to get things rather than sort of missionaries coming over from Rome um, off their own backs, kind of making directives. In terms of going up to 1073, um, in many ways, this is more arbitrary. Um, I didn't want to finish at the Norman Conquest in 1066, just because that's such a kind of traditional date of dividing up this period. I wanted to get outside of that. So, I mean, it's not very generous how much further it goes on only by um, seven more years. But um, 1073 is when Alexander II dies. And after that, Gregory the Seventh becomes Pope. And then things really do get a bit more kind of complicated in papal history. Um, There's much more kind of conflict the, the narrative moves on into a different place in a way that I think is not just a kind of traditional historiographical thing. Things really are changing in the late 11th century and I didn't really want to get sucked into that. But in fact, that, that was my initial decision when kind of trying to draw some boundaries. But actually it works very well because after Alexander II, um, England actually kind of doesn't have um, these same sort of very intense documentary relationships with the papacy again until about the eleven twenties. So really it was it was either stopping at about ten seventy three or fast forwarding right into the 12th and 13th century which Mm. is just impossible because the books can only be so long.
0: Yeah that's a lot.
1: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right well that makes a lot of sense and thank you for explaining that. Before we get into more detail about kind of how these strange documents um, were created I'd love for you to tell us a little bit about something you talk about early on in the book the idea that papal privileges um, are not just a piece of paper well papyrus um but in fact are signaling something bigger than that and we'll get into kind of how they're created but you discuss them as signaling an event can you tell us what you mean by this
1: yeah so um by an events i think this is, there's been a general trend over the last 20 years or so in work on the kind of documentary culture of the early middle ages to think about the kind of documents we have now, these kind of big physical charters and diplomas, as not just evidence of bureaucracy, not just things that report things that are happening at the time, put them into written form, but as kind of performative objects in themselves, that when you're at the court of a medieval king, um, when you get your charter, this is a a great big piece of parchment that is handed over to you in kind of grand symbolic form with religious ritual at the Royal Palace or the Royal Assembly with everyone watching. And in many ways, this this big document kind of actually, it doesn't just record some sort of uh, transaction or act of special favor, it is the act of special favor. It, and this has come part of the general kind of trend in the last couple of generations to think a lot about um, the ritual and the the visual and kind of performed world of early medieval europe um but actually none of that work really looked at the papal stuff and if you bring the papal stuff into this then it kind of absolutely intensifies this that the, these aren't just big pieces of parchment as i said these are sort of seven meter scrolls of egyptian papyrus That in terms of bringing one of these back and waving them in everyone's face um, once you're back at the royal court or at a church or whatever back in your own society um, is a very sort of serious event that's eye-catching uh, at a big moment in itself in terms of embodying one's relationship with Rome and one's relationship with the wider Mediterranean world even in a sort of local place. And I think in particular what's important about these documents is that um, you have to go to Rome to get them. These don't just arrive in the post. This. Uh, as these things turn up in cartularies, it almost seems as if this is an email or a telegram that's being sent. In fact, you have to travel all the way to Rome. You have to cross the sea. You have to go into foreign territory. You have to cross the Alps, which if you're from England is like something you could never imagine before. Go into Rome, personally petition the Pope in front of the, the regional clergy, go through all these incredibly elaborate religious rituals to pick it up in these grand basilicas full of mosaics and so forth, then come all the way back, then again, do this ceremony of proving everyone that you went there to pick up this document of special favor. And then thereafter that, that event kind of lives on because within the store chests of these churches, these great big meters long scrolls papyrus are still there. And when people want to remember the importance of this church or of this individual who picked them up or remember what the papacy means, um, what the current ideas are that's coming out of Rome, they will kind of unroll, you can imagine like a giant sort of red carpet rug in a cartoon, kind of unroll these long papyri um, and sort of relive that quite unique experience. So I suppose that, that's the kind of thing I'm getting at, but in many ways, the, the visual spectacularity of these documents and the enormous amount of time and wealth and resources and effort that goes into going all the way there and picking them up is in some ways sort of the point that you're, you're performing this idea of the relationship between your own parochial church and the Mediterranean world and the, the church of the ancient world.
0: So this is obviously very dramatic. Um, And part of the drama is, as you said, the like, oh, my God, the Alps, right? The um, sort of physical distance between England and the papacy. To what extent was this process of creating, requesting, receiving, displaying a papal privilege similar for petitioners who were coming from other parts of Europe, not from England?
1: Yeah, well, the, the issue of people coming from elsewhere is really important in its own way, because one of the main things I wanted to get at with the book, um, and this is actually kind of a, another major incentive that I hadn't mentioned before, is that the fact these kind of documents are everywhere across Europe um, makes them quite unique for us as historians. Uh, one problem with early medieval Europe is really our, our sources are not very good, uh, to put it bluntly, things get a lot better from the 12th century onwards. Um, and one issue of our sources not being very good uh, is that often we have very different kinds of sources in different um, regions, modern day countries. So often it's quite hard to compare early medieval England with France or Spain or Italy or so forth, because often the source base is, is not sufficiently close enough. There, there are lots of sources that are close, but actually it's, it's more difficult than it looks. And and this has been kind of pointed out quite a lot over the past few years. These paper documents look the same everywhere and kind of do the same things. So in many ways, they're actually a very rare opportunity for us to be able to do comparative work between these distant regions by looking at where the very different regions, very different churches, very different regions ask for the same sorts of documents at Rome and then bring them back to do similar things. And when we look for kind of differences between those Pinpointed moments that allows us to do to think more comparatively about those regions in a bigger sense. Uh, I mean, this is the whole point of the book. I'm. It's not so much about the documents themselves, but what the documents can tell us about bigger things. But I think you're you're onto a good point there. With okay, so how's it different between different regions? Um, and I think it sounds like super basic. Um, but the uh, one big issue is time and distance. I mean, this is. I think it's it's Brodell who says that that. The, the distance is the, everyone's biggest enemy in the pre-modern world. The the amount of time it takes for communications and travel and the amount of resources that have to go into that, are huge. So if you're getting a document like this from Benevento or Monte Cassino, as opposed to getting it from York, um, then there's a very different kind of investment involved. But I think that has a couple of consequences, which is, I think certainly there are less of these interactions in England than in most of the core of Europe, the core of Latin Europe, um, and that's important to underline because there is a kind of myth that isn't based on anything that England and the Papacy and the early Ages have this kind of very close super tight relationships um, which kind of isn't matched elsewhere with other regions. I think if anything, um, of all the regions that are in touch with Rome in this period, England is in touch with it the least. But also I think that distance, you know, as the saying goes, can make the heart grow fonder. I think the fact it's such an effort to interact with Rome in this period, and it costs so much, and the fact that these giant scrolls of papyri will look even more exotic and strange in the north of England than they do say in the south of Italy, um, means that in many ways, this, this relationship could also become kind of more intense and more meaningful. So I suppose, think potentially in this period in terms of very kind of a small number of super intense and super meaningful interactions between England and the papacy, rather than something that's potentially a bit more routine that's happening elsewhere.
0: Absolutely fascinating um, and gives us a really good sense of kind of what's happening. And I appreciate kind of the comment about the significance from a historian's perspective of being able to compare the sources. Um, This is not just a one-off comment. You do make a lot of useful provide a lot of useful information in the book for future historians for other historians um, which is incredibly helpful (laughs) so uh, we're not actually going to go into the details though of chapter three of the book mostly because I'm probably not the right kind of historian to fully appreciate every detail in it but it's a really cool idea so would you mind for those specialists who might be listening explaining what you've done in chapter three of your book and how people might use it?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, the, so the third chapter of the book, it, it's, it's pretty basic, just sort of very time consuming from my own point of view, um, which is essentially just laying out what the manuscript tradition of all the documents that we know about in England are. Um, what do I mean by that? Essentially, um, as I said, actually, none of these documents survive in their original form from England. So we have to reconstruct them from later copies, which begin from the eighth, ninth, 10th century onwards, but really pick up from the 12th and 13th century. Um, now, I think in terms of like just functionality that for research, what I'm trying to do in that chapter, there's a, there's a book, which is now a website, which all early medievalists know called Sawyer. Um, Sawyer's Anglo-Saxon Charters, which essentially just lays out all the manuscripts and what all the charters are for the native quote-unquote native Anglo-Saxon documentary tradition. In sort of practical terms, the the chapter is just doing that to just kind of remind everyone that it's not just documents written by the English in England that they have in English archives. You have all these um, very distant papal documents in those same archives as well, so it's just kind of laying out what the manuscripts are so that future research can happen. But I think it it does also have a kind of use for later readers, um, particularly in terms of the point of this chapter is actually also makes the point that half of what we have from these later manuscripts of the 12th century onwards uh, are forgeries. So there's a kind of another history going on here, which is that, um, our sense of the interactions between England and the Papacy in the early Middle Ages is, is half true and half false in terms of the material we have at hand. Um, and what this chapter does is point out that about 50% of this material is forged. Um, and so it, there's a real investment from the 12th and 13th century onwards with monks in late medieval England, uh, monks and clerics, to rewrite this history already to make it serve their own ends. And I suppose if if the book has a purpose in trying to sort of deconstruct some of that later thinking about what the relationship between England and the papacy should have been, it's important to remember that that rewriting and reconstruction of that past um, already begins in the Middle Ages from the 12th century onwards. And most of that is, they're pretty sort of mundane documents that are kind of, you know, bigging up any particular monastery and making it sound more important by sort of projecting back its relationship with Rome into a more distant past. But some of them also quite bizarre. So for example, there's a couple, it seems in the 15th century, the University of Cambridge um, wants to imagine that a seventh century Pope went to Cambridge University, and it forges some documents to make up that tradition. I should stress some centuries before <laughs> the University of Cambridge ever exists. So it goes to show that there is a um, this interest in digging into this past and rewriting it for contemporary purposes. Um, it, it's not just a modern thing. This goes right back into the Middle Ages.
0: Honestly, that's pretty entertaining. <laughs> Seems like the sort of thing that would be very easy to catch out, but perhaps not. Um, you mentioned kind of one of the common purposes of the documents is, uh, I believe, you monasteries trying to make themselves seem more important. um And I'd love to ask you about that because this is absolutely fascinating. Why might a monastery, perhaps somewhere like Malmesbury, you know, kind of important in this time and place already? Why would they want a big shiny papyrus that says that the only jurisdiction that they answer to is St. Peter's Church in Rome?
1: Yeah, so this is so the Mums, for example, is one of a um, a sort of a cluster of examples from the late 7th, early 8th century, Mm -hmm. um, where some of these big new English monasteries are picking up these fairly straightforward textually documents which as you say, say that they exist only within the jurisdiction of the Church of Rome. And uh, everyone kind of knows about these. Well, (laughs) everyone looking at the material knows about these, but um, it's not really been considered what does that actually mean? Because, uh, I mean, this can't be stressed enough is that the, the papacy does not have jurisdiction over the whole of Christianity or even the Latin European church in this period. It's its completely toothless as an organization. It, it, it doesn't do anything. It relies on other people's interest in it. Um, the papacy doesn't really even control all the churches in Rome. So why do this at all? And I think the, the point I tried to stress in the book is that it's often kind of circumstantial about what's happening right in the moment. So often looking at these documents, Um, in sort of 19th, early 20th scholarship, 20th century scholarship, people say, okay, this is the roots of this moment in which the papacy is expanding its jurisdiction over the entire European church and everyone is sort of coming in to join this. Um, I think what I try to do, looking at these English ones in the late 7th century is say that this seems to be something that's quite particular to, circumstances happening within England um, at exactly this period. And I think what it's important to stress is that England is quite unusual in the seventh century. England is um, converted to Christianity from the 590s onwards, um, lots of different kingdoms, but England and and Britain by, essentially we really mean Britain in this period, is, is unusual because it doesn't have any towns or cities. Uh, Christianity in antiquity, late antiquity, beginning of the early Middle Ages, is absolutely an urban phenomenon. Um, It's civic communities based around bishops. And when you do get monasteries until, really until the seventh century, those monasteries are usually quite closely attached to the cities. Um, So the conversion of England is quite odd because there aren't any cities for the bishops to go. There there aren't places for these um, Christian communities on this traditional level. So what happens actually, particularly John Blair in his book in Anglo-Saxon Church, 2005, really pointed this out, uh, is that the the early English church is is really monastic. Uh, Monasteries are the main places where things are going on. Essentially, these are the closest you'll get to something like a town. So kind of monasteries have free range in early medieval England. And I think there is something happening towards the late seventh century at the end of this sort of monastic free-for-all happening across the hundred years before um, where bishops are starting to crack down a bit. Suddenly you do have more bishops with a stronger sense of their territoriality who want to kind of very reasonably uh, bring in a kind of more conventional European model where monasteries answer to bishops. Um, within kind of set dioceses. And I think what's happening with this particular batch of English documents at this time is that some of these monasteries are trying to find ways of not exiting this kind of hierarchical Episcopal system, but preserving their status quo from a generation before where monasteries kind of existed within their own autonomous sphere. And I think what they try as a strategy is getting hold of these documents which are already being issued to other places in Europe at the time, um, which say that places only exist under papal jurisdiction and nowhere else. And I think it's an attempt to kind of jump out of the idea that uh, any particular monastery uh, exists within a kingdom or a diocese. I think this is what's happening at Bede's Monastery in Wemouth and Jarrow. This is happening at just the same time. But... Something that's worth underlining is is the question of, (laughs) does this work? Um, And and I I don't get the impression it does, but I don't think that matters. And and something I kind of keep pressing in the book is again, we're not building up this linear narrative where this strong sense of what the papacy is and what interactions between the papacy and England are, has to kind of build up this big kind of jurisdictional um, model of, of what papal england should look like i think you get moments where people try stuff out and it doesn't work out and i think this is an example of that and i don't think that makes it less important i think if anything it makes it more interesting
0: absolutely more interesting um, and also in a lot of ways more important to understand historically we don't just want to know kind of what did work we want to know sort of all the different things to get there even if some of them are like, oh, hang on, we're going to try and make this big declaration and no one cares, right? Yeah. So similarly, um, I'd love to ask you about another sort of instance you talk about in the book where something interesting happens, even if it doesn't seem to quite stick, um, which is in Marcia and the role of women the role of queens, of princesses, of, of female leaders. And um, what can we learn about the interesting things happening on in those areas in Marcia through the lens of papal privileges?
1: Yeah, so the, the mercy evidence is quite interesting. So this is about fast-forwarding on 100 years from what we were just discussing, so really the, the late 8th, early 9th century. And, uh, I mean, what's happened in England in the meantime is um, essentially you've got this kind of very serious state building. You've got this great big Mercian super state, which takes up about sort of the bottom half of what's now England. Um, And it's this period of very intense sort of state building and quote unquote unification. Uh, But what it's not a period of is dynasty building. And this is where it's very different to the Carolingians. So the big Carolingian project's happening at the same time in continental Europe, where, and also it's really in the Merovingian tradition, you're getting this sort of very Frankish, what becomes French idea that the uh, the state is embodied in one particular family and only people from that family can be in control. Um, in some ways, we, we take that for granted because in the remainder of the Middle Ages into the early modern period and so forth, that kind of particularly like Frankish genealogical view of state building and of dynasty becomes normalized. Actually, in, in the early Middle Ages, kingship is often much more elective, that every time a king dies, it's kind of like, okay, let's all gather around and work out who's the next guy. So you've got a kind of uh, arguably something like a contradiction in um, mercy in England in the eighth, ninth century, where you've got this big kind of centralization of state building on a kind of Frankish, Merovingian, Carolingian model, um, but every generation they're choosing a new king. Uh, I mean, the kings aren't necessarily happy with this, but they seem to know that this is what's going on. So what we do see are these quite unique examples of requests for papal documents, you know, which the papacy apparently happily draws up, where um, a-, a king and a queen will, for example, King Offa and his wife Kinserith, will ask that their property is confirmed by the papacy in Rome. So they're not looking for confirmation within their own kind of legal society or within their own church. It's a sort of like um, third party overseas guarantor where the papacy kind of promises to protect through, I suppose, anathema and excommunication, anyone from touching their property um, with a particular point made that it's it's property that's going into the people born of their family um, with the implication that it's after they die. So the papacy, again, this is, this is what I mean about sort of using this resource of Rome and the sort of very strange, spectacular documents it produced, using it for a new kind of experiment, which is not monasteries or ecclesiastics, um, but kings and queens um, using it as a way of a kind of um, offshore <laughs> guarantor of their property for future generations to keep it out of hands within their regional society. And what's interesting, um, perhaps to be contrasted with the earlier example in Malmesbury and Weymouth-Jarrow is that this does seem to work. Um, and what we see it's as we we're saying, particularly kind of queens, princesses, abbesses, because women tend to outlive men, because they don't tend to get murdered as much. Um, you'll think after these kings die, um, the widows and daughters appear to be using these papal documents to protect their property um, against usurpers. And certainly the key usurpers, it seems, are, are from the church. and particularly from the Archbishop of Canterbury in this period. And what's interesting is that it does seem to work. Um, so we certainly see the case where Abess Quenphith, who's the um, the daughter of a former king, is potentially so successful with protecting her property um, from um, the Archbishop of Canterbury, Archbishop Wilfred, um, that he, he may get deposed and excommunicated for several years in this process. Um, And there's a kind of paradox here as well, because this seems to be the period in which these documents are most powerful and most useful. But it's also a period from which our source material is the most shaky, that actually what survives of these documents, it's either highly garbled, highly mutilated documents that seem to have been edited down after the event or in fact, we have to look for copies in non-English archives. So the most important of them, we actually know about from an archive in the north of Italy, where, well, for various reasons that don't need elaboration, it ends up in a near contemporary copy. So you have this interesting thing where actually, we have a sign when these documents are really powerful because they actually get suppressed in the generation after because they're seen as potentially dangerous, that they really can work in certain situations. And the case with Quentriff, is interesting because we actually have a legend about her from the 11th century, late 11th century Benedictine monks. They write this story about her, which completely reimagines her as this sort of evil witch queen who murders her brother, and then the papacy has to send in the Archbishop of Canterbury to save the day. In fact, what we can learn by reconstructing the documents of the time is that actually she protects this monastery and she protects it from the Archbishop of Canterbury um, in the contemporary setting. And within the sort of um, 300 years in between when these documents are destroyed, this story is rewritten to kind of completely flip these gender roles. And that's interesting in a way as well, because it shows you again, how as early as the late 11th 12th century Uh, Monks ecclesiastics have difficulty imagining what the early medieval papacy is and what the early medieval papacy does. When they come across these documents, (laughs) like scraps of documents, oral legends that say that the papacy was privileging this abbess, this queen, to use this monastery as her private property and use it to kind of get rid of an archbishop they almost kind of they have to rewrite that it, it doesn't make any sense so again we're, we've got this process in which the early medieval papacy and the way in which people use Rome in the early middle ages um is is very different to what happens later and, and people people have trouble understanding that even within the middle ages
0: and this goes right back to the original idea of weirding our understanding of it um and Right, and trying to stay away from going, oh, they're just like us, right? So useful on a number of levels. Moving um, further through the time period, I'm wondering if you can help me understand something that I found really intriguing. Um, You document in the book that in the 10th century, West Saxon uh, was having a whole bunch of different kinds of political interactions with Rome. I was surprised to read that one of those kinds of interactions was not papal privileges. In fact, they seem to be doing all sorts of things with Rome, but not that. Why?
1: Um, Yeah, so what we're looking at here, so really it's the the West Saxon-dominated English kingdom. So essentially what we're looking at here is the beginnings of what becomes the kingdom of the English for the first time which is really created in the 10th century. So you do have a kind of unified kingdom with a dynasty, et cetera, et cetera. It's happened at last. Um, Now, for whatever reason, (laughs) um, during this sort of peak period of documentation and of interest between this area and Rome, they they are not picking up these documents. and I guess maybe a, a better way of coming at this is to say, well, what is, what is a wrong explanation? And the wrong explanation would be the traditional one, which is um, in this same period in the 10th century, the Carolingian empire has fallen apart and you're really seeing this big boom in people seeking papal privileges at monasteries and churches and so forth. Um, all across Europe, um, with the narrative particularly focused around France. And at the same time, that the Empire is falling apart and everyone is turning to the Pope, the English kingdom is forming for the first time, and they're not turning to the Pope for these documents. And a traditional kind of explanation for that would be that the the anarchy and the confusion of the state of Europe at this time, forces people to kind of turn to Rome as a protector, the, the Catholic narrative would be like Rome saves the day, the Protestant narrative would be that Rome sneaks in undercover <laughs> during this moment. Um, but either way, it, it's predicated on this idea that a strong state doesn't need a Pope and sort of Europe becoming messy and falling to bits does. And really this, this, this narrative doesn't work because actually once you look at all the documents and where they are or what people are doing with them, you see that actually most of them uh, aren't going to France, which is a bit politically messy in this period, um, but actually going to churches and sort of particularly kind of strong kind of royal imperial churches um, in the the German Empire, uh, Germany and the north of Italy. And if anything, actually in this, in the, Car- in the post-Carolingian world, in the 10th century, people are mostly turning to Rome as a way of kind of bolstering pre-existing power at centers of, centers of royal and imperial power. So that explanation doesn't really work for thinking about why the English aren't using it, because the papacy isn't an alternative to a strong state or royal kingship, royal power. Um, if anything, it can be a, a supplement to it. Um, what I think then is, is a better way of thinking about this, is that in many ways, actually, this big boom in people picking up paper documents in the 10th century actually starts a bit earlier in the late Carolingian period. Um, So I think actually what this is, is actually in many ways, this is a continuing kind of momentum of a Carolingian tradition. Um, And not just because you kind of, one has a tendency to get these privileges reissued and um, reconfirmed. Um, with every few generations, so you, this kind of snowball effect builds up. But also, I think it's particularly important for these areas in the post-Carolingian world um, to think about having paper documents and interacting with Rome as a way of expressing this kind of pan-Carolingian, pan-imperial, pan-European identity, um, even after the empire has fallen apart. Actually, if you look at these documents of this period. They're still signed off with the name of the empire and kind of authenticated in the emperor's name, even when they're issued to places outside the empire. And I think it means a lot that places in Catalonia can say to themselves, I've got this giant document I got from Rome signed off in the imperial name that looks just like one that's in Monte Cassino, in Fartha, in Magdeburg, in Bavaria, in the north of France. Um, And actually, of course, when people go to Rome, they meet people from these other regions. So I think there are ways in which actually this continuing and kind of snowballing interest in building up more and more papal documentation in this post-Carolingian 10th century moment has a lot to do with um, continuing this sense of Carolingian identity. I think also what these documents do is that they, um, they help overcome some issues with complexity which I think are there from the later Carolingian period. From the later Carolingian period, you have more internal borders, more kings, more courts. So I think particular monasteries, um, life becomes more complicated in terms of different patrons, different allegiances happening in different directions. And I think bringing in the papacy and bringing in papal documentary support, signs of the Pope's special favour are a way of supplementing that complexity and potentially overcoming it. Um, I think that continues again into the 10th century. So you get this momentum effect where this carries on into subsequent decades. If you look at England, sorry, <laughs> if you no, look at England. Um, so that, that's setting the scene comparatively. If you look at England very simply, I think what's going on is that England is smaller and simpler than the Carolingian world, and it's built, been built from scratch. The the new English kingdom that comes into being in the 10th century doesn't have this Carolingian tradition, doesn't have this kind of past that it's trying to build on that's related to the world of Charlemagne and so forth and perpetuate. Um, So it's outside of that pan-European post carolingian tradition. And it's also a small country. This this is underrated by people who work on English history, is England is small and England is basic. It's flat, there aren't any big rivers. Um, It's relatively easy to govern. So I think if anything, if there's a reason why the English aren't interested in the papacy in this time, is that what's appealing in the Carolingian world, which is Carolingian tradition, Carolingian traditions, and the complexity of the post carolingian world, it's about the lack of tradition and the, the simplicity of the English world, which doesn't necessitate the same use for documentary things. But I think you're absolutely right that what's interesting in this period is that the English still are really interested in Rome. They're not going and picking up these documents to bring back, to implement in their own church and state and society. But they are going to Rome a lot. They're giving, uh, as is well documented, this thing Peter's Pence where they send loads of money over every year. And there's very frequent pilgrimages, including from serious guys like archbishops and so forth. And I think actually the best way to understand that is that Rome this period is like a stage on like the international, uh, the, the theater of international politics. Uh, this, is, yeah, this is like going to the, the big UN conference every year that actually there's a brand new English kingdom. and I think filling it full of English money and sending off English archbishops as ambassadors um, every few years, is a way of making everyone else in the European post-Carolingian world but also the bigger Mediterranean world, places like Byzantium and potentially the Caliphates, um, appearing every year in Rome is a way of advertising this new state and sort of being seen as this sort of fledgling kingdom. What they're not interested in is then bringing back the documentary culture and the laws from that area back into this new state.
0: Hmm very interesting helping us understand those nuances um and again i think that that's worth having gone into because it's not a kind of oh every decade sees more privileges or every decade kind of sees this accumulation of the same sort of thing right as you're demonstrating and by talking us through this history there's all sorts of kind of ups and downs and changes and if we sort of tried to treat the whole period as like one thing we we'd miss out a lot of this nuance um and we'd probably miss it out because we often tend to kind of go with what happens at the end of any period and assume it's kind of been that way for a while and that would be sort of misleading if we did that with uh what you've just described to us because if we move from the 10th to the 11th century there's then an increase of papal privileges. Um, They go from not really wanting them to suddenly there's a whole load. And then suddenly it all stops. So what's going on here? Yeah, well, so I think
1: this is again partly we're moving then into the the very transformative world of the 11th century. And I guess the main point to really nail down on here is that from 1046, um, what the papacy is, quite radically changes. Um, you get what we'd sort of now call it sort of the reform papacy or the papal revolution. And I think um, Chris Wickham has a sort of analogy with this, that it's, it's really like the Bolsheviks taking over the Winter Palace, that you're getting in these quite serious, highly ideological um, church reformers completely take over the apparatus of the church in Rome. Um, very quickly and with like a real sense of ideology and intention in the 1040s. Um, What's important to stress is that in the earlier period, um, popes are always from Rome, almost always from Rome. The Roman clergy is literally the clergy of Rome. This isn't like now or in the early modern period where people come from all over Italy, all over the world to become popes and the cardinals are kind of a very international bunch this is a sort of tightly run roman operation in rome which is a very specific city with sort of strong ties to the well ties of some kind to the sort of the byzantine world to the east as much as it has to the latin european world what happens in 1040s is this is taken over from reformers from the outside and these reformers are actually mostly from germany or from lotharingia which is sort of the bit between germany and france and the big thing that happens that applies to kind of everywhere in Europe is suddenly just there's way more stuff happening in terms of the papacy. The papacy is really like absolutely going for it from this period and no longer waiting for people to come to it to ask for things so it can sign off and do these sort of very grand papyrus documents. They start issuing normal looking documents and they're issuing them with a real kind of um, Speed and frequency, they're making their own statements, uh, sort of motu proprio off their own back, about kind of taking control uh, of this big idea of the papacy. And in many ways, this is kind of the roots of the papacy as we know it from there on. This is that turning point. Now, England, like everywhere, does get sucked into this a bit. And so, in some ways, it's not that surprising that actually you get this big flurry of um, interactions between England and Rome at just this point. Um, But I think what's also important in this period, it's about personnel. And something peculiar about the English church for unrelated reasons in the early 11th, mid 11th century is that for the first time really ever since the conversion um, in the seventh century, um, it has, lots of kind of um, European-born ecclesiastics right at the top of the power of the kingdom, uh, and particularly from Lotharingia. Um, So this sort of key area around Liège um, at the heart of the former Carolingian world. And I think this means a couple of things, which is that we were just talking before about how this kind of new energy about really interacting with the papacy more and more and more that picks up in the post Carolingian world in 10th century Europe doesn't really apply to England. I think suddenly from the middle 11th century, you're getting guys who grew up in that world and reading the texts of that world and bringing the texts of that world wisdom, um, who are like, hey, you know we can bring Rome into this to kind of solve a particular problem and so forth. So I think there's much more interest in the papacy in Rome once these new guys and this new personnel comes in but also there's personal connectivity as well. Um, Actually, these guys from Lotharingia probably know or know friends of friends of the same guys who are now in control in Rome. So you get these kind of new interpersonal networks building up in Europe in this period that are stretching right from York down to Rome and beyond. And so it makes a lot of sense that suddenly actually you're getting this flurry of new interest that's going on. I think it helps as well that the English Kingdom, uh, you know, after this big crystallization moment in the 10th century, in the early, mid-11th century, things are a bit messy. Um, you're getting kind of repeated successions of kings from different families often end in violent ways. Um, you, there's a sense maybe of, of a kind of political instability Going on, and I think with that instability comes a new openness to trying new things and experimentation. And so that coinciding with there being a kind of cool new crazy reform papacy going on in Rome at the same time um, can partly explain why suddenly people are interested in it. But as you point out, this doesn't really last beyond a generation, and there's various reasons for that. I think the Norman conquest complicates things once again. But I think also it's a reminder that this kind of obsessing about networks and prosopography, which historians often do, uh, does have its limits. (laughs) I think its structural change is real. Ideas are real. And just kind of explaining away um, big changes in history by saying, well, they went to the same school. Well, they know each other. So whatever um, can only go so far. Um, And I think in some ways, the fact that this sudden wave of enthusiasm about the papacy, once you've got these guys from the network in England only lasting so long, actually underlines that point that actually there needs to be kind of bigger structural changes to make this kind of interaction make sense. So you kind of get this wave of new intensified interactions between England and the papacy, England and Rome from the 1040s to the early 1070s and then everyone dies out and it kind of ends again and really that new history doesn't begin until after the period that the book looks at from the mid 12th century onwards Um, and, and it underlines the point that I think you were making that we're looking at kind of moments of experimentation moments of activity which then kind of die out that actually if we're trying to look for a grand narrative that fits everything together we can't find it <laughs> and that's not a problem if anything the the difficulty of finding the grand narrative story of england and the papers in the early millages um, is a comforting sign if the narrative makes sense it might not be real
0: hmm, that's true and all of these pieces if we think about putting them together not as you say in a sort of one simplistic grand narrative, um, but sort of taking a step back and looking at them as individual pieces, what do you think it tells us about processes of state formation and politics in Anglo-Saxon England?
1: Um, well, you know, I, I don't think it tells us much about processes of state formation or politics. Um, and, and again, I, but I suppose that's a point in itself. Um that particularly with England, um, I mean, these two things, both the history of England in the early Middle Ages and the history of the papacy in the Middle Ages are absolutely geared around these teleological master narratives um, that are about consolidation and formation. And I think if anything, the degree to which the evidence that we have doesn't fit into those narratives and doesn't support them um, is, is comforting and shows that they're not necessarily to be trusted, and they're not necessarily um, very interesting. I, a point I make at the end of the book, which is, which is something kind of a, a lot of historians are really emphasizing in the last generation of scholarship is a much better way for us to think about the early Middle Ages or what used to be called the Dark Ages, is not this kind of birth of nations idea, which the field was kind of built around in the 19th century. Um, but if anything, thinking of this as, as a period of kind of great experimentation, that there's a kind of creativity, and, and this applies on a global scale. There's a special, past and present special on the global Middle Ages, came out a couple of years ago, that really stresses this point, which, which is that what's really interesting about the Middle Ages is, is that there, there isn't this kind of set narrative, that within the kind of destabilization of this time, there's a lot more creativity, there's a lot more experimentation. Some experiments don't work, some do. And this is a point in itself, and this is just as valid an area of historical study as anything to do with formational consolidation. And I think this is a helpful way of thinking about the papacy in this period. The papacy and the idea of Rome, this mega city full of peoples and texts and buildings and ideas is like this kind of laboratory that different parts of europe can sort of dip in and out of to kind of use as a resource to get ideas from um, to exchange ideas with each other to then bring back to their regions and kind of use them to solve particular problems on the spot and we need to look at what's happening on the spot that's fitting it into this mega narrative of what's the birth of England, what's the birth of the papacy um, doesn't help us at all. And I don't think it's very interesting anymore. I think it's been done. The best work on that happened in the 1930s and it, it still stands.
0: And this is why it's so interesting to kind of poke at these other questions. So thank you for the wonderful sort of summary of a lot of the things we've been discussing. Um, leaving me with only my final question. This book is now done. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic, that you might want to give us a preview of?
1: Um, at the moment, I'm just, I'm just looking at small things. Um, I'm, I'm moving a bit away from England and moving further south. Um, I'm doing some collaborative work on the cult of saints in Merovingian Gaul an and Ireland and Britain in the 7th century. I'm doing some work on anti-Jewish pogroms in Clermont, in the uh, in the south of France, in the sixth and seventh century. Um, Also working on collaborative projects about again papyrus, but actually kind of the the economics of it: how is this made and distributed across the Mediterranean through the first millennium? Um, And looking a little actually at urban history as well, thinking about interactions between Um, legal history and urban history um, in the south of France and in, in Thessaloniki in Greece. So respectfully moving away from England, but I'm just trying to (laughs) a lot (laughs) of it. Fair
0: enough and well all of that sounds very interesting so thank you for um, giving us that little sneak preview and of course while you are working on those various projects listeners can read the book we've been discussing England and the papacy in the early middle ages papal privileges in European perspective 680 to 1073 just published in 2023 by Oxford University Press Ben thank you so much for being with us on the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me.